Good morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. The year was 1864. Civil War was still raging on. But in the city of New York, Bellevue Hospital received a rather routine admission. It was a charity case, actually, one among many from that particular section of the city, a place in the city called the Bowery. It was a place of filth and loneliness and poverty and cheap booze and disease. And when you lived in the Bowery, your next stop was usually the morgue. It was just that kind of a place. But a man from that section of town was admitted to busy Bellevue Hospital. He had a sliced throat and a concussion. His name was misspelled on the hospital registry. His age was also listed incorrectly. He was 37, not 39. And someone might say, what a shame for someone so young to die in such a way, in such a place. The details of what happened to him are somewhat fuzzy. But when the nurse uh, that was taking care of his needs saw him, she just kind of shrugged it off. She'd seen hundreds of cases like this. She'd probably see hundreds more. Would it have mattered if she had known the name of this man? Maybe. His recent past was the polar opposite of the life he had lived just a few years before. The Bowery, again, just the dead-end stop for what was for him had been an incredible life at one point, but all that was over. He'd been spending the nights in 50-cent-a-night flop houses full of suffering humanity. He lived for the next drink more than his next meal. His health was gone. He was starving. And on that icy, cold January morning, this shell of a man who looked more than twice his age fell. Don't know how his neck was sliced, whether it was from a basin that toppled and broke or whether it was from a large knife that he had. He got to the hospital, semi-conscious, The doctor used a simple black sewing thread to suture the wound. And all the while he was being stitched up, this bum kept asking for a drink. They placed him in a paddy wagon and dumped him off at Bellevue Hospital, where he would languish, unable to eat for three days, and then he died alone. His only friend, a drinking buddy, went looking for him and they directed him to the morgue and there among dozens of colorless, nameless corpses with tags on their toes, he identified his friend. When they scraped his belongings together, all they found was a ragged, dirty coat with an old wallet in it that had 37 cents in Civil War script, a cent for each of the years he had lived. And there was a little scrap of paper in the other pocket. That was all he possessed. And that little scrap of paper had five words on it. 
Dear friends and gentle hearts, almost like the words of a song. Now why in the world would this drunk carry a line of lyrics? Well, maybe he thought he still had it in him. I mean, maybe this derelict still had the heart of a musical genius. A few years before his tragic death at age 37, this man had written songs that literally made the whole world sing. In fact, this man was known as the father of American music. He had written sounds, songs like Camp Town Races, Oh Susanna, I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair. Beautiful dreamer, old folks at home. 200 other songs that are deeply rooted in our rich American heritage. And some of you probably know by now the name of the man I'm talking about. It was Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster, the man nobody knew, a man that died alone. What a tragic story. A man with such incredible talent and ability, and yet... He wasted all that God-given talent and became a sad statistic due to the fact that he had no meaning in life. He, he couldn't find any purpose in life. How could someone like him that seemingly had it all, how could he lose it all? How could he fall so far? And yet it's not uncommon, is it? And it still happens time after time, even today. I mean, think of names like... And most of you will recognize these names. Think of Howard Hughes, Marilyn Monroe, Freddie Prince, Elvis Presley, Natalie Wood, Lynn Bias, if you're a sports fan, Kurt Cobain, if you're a rock music fan, lead singer of Nirvana, Chris Farley, Anna Nicole Smith, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Robin Williams, all these died as victims of suicide or as victims of alcohol or drug abuse. People that seemingly had it all, and they fell so far. And then there are those others that we know that live in our world today that are just a shell of their former self because of some incredibly poor choices they've made in their life. And they're living lives without respect, with shattered reputations, People like O.J. Simpson, or Mike Tyson, or Bernie Madoff, or Lindsay Lohan, Bill Cosby, and many others. And, and what's sadder still is the fact that there are untold amount of people today experiencing the same kind of defeat and the same kind of futility, and you don't hear about them. And maybe their lives don't end in suicide, and their names never appear in the headlines, but they're trying to escape the same kind of dissatisfaction in life. They, they, they just never know the sense of victory and joy and fulfillment that God wants His people to have. They begin their days the same way that Willie Loman, the main character in Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman, would begin his day. He would get up and hang his head in his hands and say, I have got to get up and live today, but I have forgotten why. Today, I think we meet a man like that, a man named Solomon. His story is told in 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters, and 
in 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. He also wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But Solomon was a king that had it all. He had it all and started out so well. His father, David, had reigned over Israel for 40 years. But you come to 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1, and it says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So those are David's instructions to Solomon before he, David, died. And Solomon started out so well. Started off great. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, in verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Wow. Imagine being handed a blank check from God. I mean, that's what he's got, right? Ask whatever you want of me, Solomon. It's yours. A blank check with God's signature. And what did Solomon ask for? He asked for a wise and discerning heart to rule over God's people. He didn't ask for a long life. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for the death of his enemies. And the Lord was so pleased, listen to what he said in verse 11 of 1 Kings 3. God said to him, because you've asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I've done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And as a result, Solomon became the wisest man and maybe the richest man that ever lived. Remember he showed that wisdom one time when the two women came uh, arguing about whose child this little baby was because one had rolled over on top of her baby, had died, suffocated through the night, and she went and stole the other woman's child. And uh, the woman realized, that's my child. So they come with this dispute before Solomon. He says, bring me a sword. And he's going to cut the baby in half, give half to each one. And the mother, the real mother of the child said, oh, don't do that. Let her have him, but spare the child's life. And Solomon, in his wisdom, said, give that woman the child. That's the real mother. And when the queen of Sheba came, she was so overwhelmed with his wisdom and wealth, she said, the half has not been told. 
He was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with him. Year after year, everyone that came to see Solomon brought a gift of silver or gold or robes or weapons or spices, horses, mules, sheep, cattle. If he had lived today, you'd have seen his picture on countless magazine covers like Fortune, USA Today, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, whatever. But something happened to Solomon. I don't know if it was burnout, whether you'd call it a midlife crisis. The Bible says from the many wives that he had that they turned his heart to idols and away from God. But whatever you call it, he lost his way. He lost his focus. He lost his purpose, his contentment, got involved in gross immorality and drunkenness and idolatry and extravagance and a total loss of direction. How could the wisest man that ever lived, and maybe the richest, how could he make such dumb choices? He had it all. Well, if you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, written at the end of Solomon's life, I think it gives us a peek into his story. And I think we can begin to see a little bit of Solomon's problem. One of which I think was pessimism. Solomon became pretty much a pessimist if you read Ecclesiastes. And listen, folks, the farther you get away from God, the more pessimistic you'll become. Did you know that? The farther you get away from God, the more pessimistic you get. You can't possibly have the right perspective in life when you move away from the author and the creator of life. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, reading from the New Living Translation. It says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all of his labor? Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. Everything is so weary and tiresome. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. What a negative, cynical view of life. His joy is gone. Happiness is gone. But folks, the problem isn't what's going on around him. The problem is what's going on inside of him. And boy, we need to take that to heart. We're living in tough times, right? I mean, a lot of divisiveness. Should I get a vaccination or not? Should I wear a mask or not? What's going on in Afghanistan? I don't like the decisions my government makes. I, and, and I mean, any countless number of things that just, just weigh in upon us. Folks, the problem's not what's going on around us. It's what's going on inside of us. Solomon had turned away from God. He was focusing more on other things than on God. We do that, don't we? We get caught up in focusing on all the negative stuff or all the tough stuff going on in life, and we turn our focus away from God. Solomon did that. He was alienated and estranged from the one that he used to follow so faithfully. And I've seen it happen. 
I have seen people disconnect from God, and I can tell you that the result is never good. It's never good. When a person disconnects from God, the natural consequence is frustration and futility and emptiness in their life. It's never good. And every day we, we hear about terrorist attacks. We just remembered yesterday the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We hear about casualties to soldiers and civilians and greed and big business, fraud and health care and a depressed job market, declining property values. How can the job market be depressed when everywhere you go there are signs that say hiring? The push to legalize drugs, subsidize abortions with tax dollars, little children abducted from their beds and abused and murdered, and the pandemic and politics and all this stuff. It's hard to be optimistic in a world that's turned its back on God. Right? Yeah. Hard to be optimistic. John Paul Sartre, he wrote a book about life. He didn't know what to entitle it. So he wrote the book first, and then he entitled it. His title, Nausea. I kid you not. Ernest Hemingway, a Pulitzer Prize winner in literature, was known for the pessimism that he laced in all of his writings. And the last thing he wrote, The Old Man in the Sea, was especially pessimistic. When he finished writing it, shortly thereafter, he went and got a double-barrel shotgun and took his life. Pessimism is in our music as well. And I, I, gotta, I don't follow rock music anymore, not like I once did as I grew up and stuff, but I can remember some of the songs I knew as I went through high school and college that, that had pessimism laced throughout. The Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, some of you, you're dating yourself, you know that. Jackson Brown saying, running on empty John Lennon wrote, I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go around. Pink Floyd recorded, all you are is just another brick in the wall and I don't need no education. Country music is, can be just as pessimistic. You're always losing something there. In fact, what's the old joke that if you play your country music record backwards, you get your wife back, your house back, your dog back and everything? Yeah. One country song had lyrics that said, my wife ran off with my best friend, and boy, I sure do miss him. <laughs> Movies are pessimistic. I mean, the disaster and the horror films abound. One psychologist was asked why people go to see disaster and horror films, and he said, well, people go to escape. They want to see someone else in a worse situation than they're in. The number two killer of teenagers Number two killer teenagers is suicide. We live in very difficult times. But like Solomon, the problem isn't what's going on around us, it's what's going on inside of us. Because the result of taking your focus off God, the result of turning away from God and living life your own way, will always end up as an exercise in futility and an experience of complete frustration and pessimism. And I think you see that in Ecclesiastes. 
But notice not only his problem, notice the passions that he turned to, the things that he sought to find satisfaction in. He turned away from God, decided everything was meaningless, became a pessimist, but then he tried to find satisfaction and self-fulfillment in everything that you can imagine, and even some things maybe you can't imagine. He started looking in all the wrong places for all the wrong things. Rick Warren wrote a book that has sold millions of copies called The Purpose Driven Life. And here's how he begins that book. It begins with these words. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. And we must begin with God. It's not about you or me, it's about God. And when we get that out of place, we lose our focus, life gets messy, and even if we started well, we'll finish poorly. Solomon lost his focus. Began to look in the wrong places to find meaning in his life. He tried intellectualism. This man wrote 1,005 songs, spoke over 3,000 proverbs, became an expert in plant life, animal life, birds, reptiles, fish. People came from all over the world to hear his wisdom. But in Ecclesiastes 1.17, he said, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. So he tried pleasure. Whatever made him feel good, that was his daily pursuit. You know how deadly that kind of pursuit can be? Eating Krispy Kreme donuts makes some people feel real good. <laughs> Other people would love to stay in bed all day, every day. That makes them feel good. Other people feel good whenever they take drugs or drive recklessly or buy whatever they want, whenever they want it, regardless of whether or not they can afford it. Ecclesiastes 2.1, Solomon said, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. So he tried liquor, strong drink, a connoisseur of wine and strong drink. He thought meaning and purpose in life could be found in a bottle or maybe a wineskin in his time. In Ecclesiastes 2.3, he said, I tried cheering myself with wine, but it didn't work. So he tried laughter. That didn't work either. In Ecclesiastes 2.2 he said, Laughter is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? That left him empty. So he turned to materialism. I mean, surely the accumulation of stuff would bring satisfaction and meaning to life. Because isn't it true that the guy that dies with the most toys wins? Well, no. So in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I made gardens and parks with fruit trees. I made reservoirs. I bought male and female slaves. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem. I possessed silver and gold, houses, lands, and provinces. 
I mean, his personal annual income would have been in the hundreds of millions had he lived today. But in chapter 5, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes, he said, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. He said, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, but the abundance of the rich man keeps him awake. Worrying about all his possessions. And in chapter 5, verse 15, Solomon went on to say, A man takes nothing with him when he dies, which he can carry in his hand. Let those words sink in. So materialism didn't work. He tried sex. In Ecclesiastes 2.8, he said, I amassed a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. But he came to realize that no such thing as free love exists, and he paid a dear price for those choices. He tried careers, different careers. I mean, surely having a good job and working hard with your hands would bring fulfillment. But in chapter 2, verse 10, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And maybe you're tempted to sit there this morning and say, yeah, but that wouldn't happen to me. Man, if I had all that Solomon had, that wouldn't happen to me. If I had all this money or all these possessions or all of his women or whatever... Hey, it took Solomon an entire lifetime of pain and wrong pursuits to learn the foolishness of his ways. How long will it take us? It doesn't work. So in, back in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 6, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And that happened with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And the kingdom was split. You know, Solomon, I think, is kind of like a sparkler on the 4th of July. You light it, you know, and it's great at first, but after a while it burns out and it's nothing more than a worthless stick. Started off good. Some of you here maybe are more recent converts to Christianity. Still excited about your faith in Jesus and, and you're shining brightly and that's great. Keep the light shining. Keep the fire burning. But sometimes the older that we get, and we follow the Lord for years, sometimes it's more easy to get complacent and bored, to get tired. And like Solomon, we start to look someplace else besides God. And that's a slippery slope to be on. You start looking for your next spiritual fix, an emotional high, and... Instead of following what God's already told you through His Word. You start looking for feelings. Instead of walking by faith, you lose your focus. You begin to compromise. And compromise leads to tolerance. Tolerance leads to acceptance. Acceptance leads to defensiveness. Defensiveness leads to defiance. And it doesn't happen overnight, but once it starts to happen, it's hard to overcome. 
And rather than to walk down that slope, why not rather follow what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Don't give up. And don't be weary in doing good. So we've noticed his problems and his passions, and lastly and very quickly, the purpose he arrived at. In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon concludes there's only one fulfilling purpose in life. It's found only in a personal relationship with God, the Creator. Our lives will not make sense, and our lives will not work apart from God. So he says, chapter 12, verse 1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Boy, that ought to be a lifetime pursuit to love God and live for Him. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then down in verse 13 and 14, Now all's been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. That's the conclusion. Fear God and keep His commandments. Keep your focus on God. You take it off of God, and your life's going to be miserable and frustrating. Keep it on God. Do what He says. Follow His commandments. Your life can be fulfilling and be what God wants it to be. That's the conclusion of the matter. H.G. Wells once said, Until a man finds God, he begins at no beginning and works to no end. Solomon had it all. Nearly lost it all. Finally came to the right conclusion. Don't follow and do what Solomon did. Do what he wrote there in Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. In a world that seems to spiral out of control. And in our lives that can be filled with so many discouraging and frustrating things. How do we deal with that? By fearing God and keeping his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. I don't know what decisions you may have to make this morning, but I hope you will decide, well, I'm going to fear God and follow his commands because it's what's going on inside that is most important. If you have decisions you want to make public, you can meet me down front as we stand and sing.